on the prequel to the 32nd episode. We're learning about evil versus evil and previewing Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Oh, and welcome back to the prequel to the 32nd episode of This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We're going back into Harry Potter after our brief foyer into where the wild things are, a brief diversion mm. as we tackle the monstrosity that is Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. That will be next week's episode. We have a, it's going to be a brief prequel episode, but we have a few segments here. Uh, so we're going to get right into our first segment, learning what this film is lit. Evil versus evil. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. So that's evil versus evil in all, all caps. caps. Yes. Uh, there's probably a better way to describe this um, or a better name for this segment. But uh, I was inspired to kind of talk about this by a line I literally just read the other day uh, by Sirius Black himself. And the characters are talking to him about Umbridge. And Ron, I believe it is, says she's terrible enough to be a Death Eater. Mm-hmm. And Sirius responds by saying, yeah, but the world isn't split into good people and Death Eaters. Too true. It's too true. And I thought it would be an interesting topic to discuss as we kind of continue on with the themes that are introduced throughout the books as they progress. I think this is the first book where this sort of idea comes up or comes up a lot more. Mm-hmm. Definitely throughout to some extent. Uh, yeah, it's it's touched on throughout the series. But it's, I mean, it's explicitly stated in the line I read right. uh, by Sirius in this one. Um, but yeah, it's definitely touched upon throughout. But this is where it kind of really starts to pick up uh, post book four with the actors within the ministry and, and other people mm-hmm. along those lines versus um, compared to the Death Eaters and Voldemort himself. So we're going to set up a few of the characters that are pivotal in this book or important in this book, mainly or mostly speaking, that aren't what you would qualify as evil, capital E-V-I-L, in the sense that they are not supporters of Lord Voldemort. They are not right. Lord Voldemort. Uh, well, one of these is kind of on the fence as opposed to, as, in terms of supporters of Lord Voldemort. <laughs> but there's a there's a discussion of it in the book that makes it seem like they're not at least explicitly like... They're not, they weren't Death Eaters. Yeah. At least. Uh, that, but so they're not, they're not capital E-V-I-L, but they are evil in, the, in another sense, or they are bad in another sense. And we'll discuss kind of the, the importance of the theme and why it's included and why we like it as an addition and what we think it brings to the series. So, so here's some of the characters that uh, are, are lowercase E-V-I-L uh, in this book that previously weren't. Well, at the end of four Fudge yeah. was, but the first one is Fudge, and some of the the things that kind of that he represents that it, that are lowercase evils that he's incompetent, he's ignorant, he's more worried about maintaining his power mm-hmm. and the status quo within society than he is at dealing with actual issues that are occurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very much an ostrich sticking his head in the sand because he wants to maintain <laughs> his. I know that's a myth, but he wants to maintain his uh, his comfort level. Yeah. He is the prime minister. He wants to keep being the prime minister and he knows if he has to deal and, and he wants to keep being the prime minister and not have to deal with the yeah. very real and difficult <laughs> problem of uh, a rising <laughs> fascist wizard regime. Yeah. Fudge is, is scared. Yeah. And, and he's scared. Yeah. He responds to that fear by 
lashing out and by, like you said, by sticking his head in the sand instead of by rising to the occasion and doing something about it. And up to up to this point, he's been more or less you know, kind of ineffective, an ineffective, but, but an okay guy, yeah, just fine. Yeah. Other than the, as we mentioned, the end of book four is where this really comes to light. Yes. But then this book five is the sort of continuation and escalation of that within. Fudge. Right. And then the other thing he is, is jealous. Um, yeah. He's because he's uh, immensely jealous of Dumbledore and, and Dumbledore's ability. And they, there's a backstory in this book about how everybody wanted Dumbledore to be the mm-hmm. prime minister after, uh, Voldemort's downfall, but mm-hmm. that Dumbledore didn't want to do it. So Fudge basically got it. But now Fudge is constantly looking over his shoulder, you know, worried that everybody's gonna yeah. kick him out and <laughs> put Dumbledore in power. So he's he's in- incredibly jealous. And obviously a lot of evil characters also have like evil evil characters have a lot of these characteristics. But these are some people that aren't categorically evil. Right. But Yeah, I mean uh, and what we're talking about yeah. here is kind of the line between um, characters who are storybook evil yes. and characters who are maybe people you encounter in real life. Right. And m- more so on top of that, that a lot of these people are, at least in in principle, opposed, opposed, quote unquote, unquote, to the actual evil. Like, yeah. Fudge, absolutely... If he were to overcome all of his numerous character flaws, he's not a supporter of Voldemort. Right. He would would stand against him. He's just because of all of his other flaws and 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 problems, won't admit it. Or, you know, doesn't see that that Voldemort's back. Won't believe it. That sort of thing. Um, so they are in in theory opponents of the fascism that is rising, but yes. in practice are uh, enablers of it. Yes. And so that's sort of uh, in my the reason I one of the other reasons I want to talk about I think it's very topical politically, um, but I just uh, yeah wanted to kind of contrast that. So yes, they are more realistic in the sense that they're not just like I mean we know Voldemort's motivations are you mm-hmm. know wants to conquer death and he covets power and and to rise above his namesake you know all the way and doesn't like Muggles for um, numerous reasons because of family issues and all these other things and his heritage and that sort of thing, but. Um, he is, you know, to some extent kind of car- not cartoon. He's very, he's nuanced and layered, but he is a storybook villain. Yes. Who is out for evil things to do evil things. These people aren't motivated for evil purposes necessarily, but they have the side effect of doing, not side effect, but through their, all their flaws and that sort of thing, their very human flaws, uh, do end up being enabling evil. So Fudge was the first one. Uh, Umbridge, obviously. Uh, and now she borders... In some ways, she, she's yeah. She borders on evil, evil. True, but she's also not a Death Eater. I, I yeah. mean, she's not a you know. Uh, and again, there's different types of evil, obviously, and she absolutely is. And that's why I'm still classifying all of these people right. to some extent. They're on some sort of the spectrum of evil. Um, but there, I think there's a crossover point, at least in the narrative of the book, between Death Eaters and Voldemort mm-hmm. and the rest of society. Uh, no, absolutely. There's a there's a hard line crossover, but it's that it, the book also wants you to pay attention to the fact that even if you don't cross that hard line, doesn't mean you're not still part of that to yeah. some extent. Um, so Umbridge, uh, in, in contrast to Fudge, is very competent, at least seemingly mostly mm-hmm. competent, um, but she's also incredibly ignorant 
and maintain worried about maintaining power and status quo. She's also a bigot, which fudge we don't seem to think necessary. At least not outwardly outspokenly so in the way that Umbridge is. I feel like fudge is a bigot in the same way that maybe like a lot of a lot of are. a lot of wizards yeah. are. It's part of the fabric of their society, yeah. so he is, but it's not something that necessarily like is made a point of. Right. Because it's just kind of part of the fabric of that world. Right. Umbridge, on the other hand, uh, we yeah. learn has like specifically drafted legislation yes. that is very discriminatory and yes. awful. Yes. Yeah. She's much more in the line of somebody who, yes, uh, you know, comparing it to something like uh, marriage equality is drafting mm-hmm. legislation opposing this, where as opposed to like your general churchgoer who supports the system that or not every you know but like your general sort of cons- vaguely conservative churchgoer who supports the system that also is pushing a narrative or you know is pushing anti-marriage uh equality they're not it's not the same equivalent but it's you know yeah but um so yeah she's but she's also a giant bigot um percy uh, uh falls lower on this list but he's also in there because he's incredibly loyal but to a fault yeah, uh, and he's, to the wrong people. Yeah, he's loyal to the wrong people. Loyal to the wrong people. Uh, and the reason he's loyal to the wrong people is that he's he's power hungry in a weird way. He's not power hungry in the same way that like Umbridge or Voldemort is, mm-hmm. but he's power hungry slash approval hungry in the way that I mean that Percy is. Like he just he 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 wants to prove how competent he is all the yeah. time, and so that by doing that, and, and the way he thinks to do that is through government. Um, mm-hmm. And rising up through government and, you know, and kind of making a name for himself. And that stems from his insecurities with his his family and the fact that they've always been poor and sort of looked yeah. down upon by the wizarding community. He wants to kind of rise above that station. Um, so he goes about doing that, but being incredibly loyal to the higher ups within the ministry. Just turns out that at the time where he's going through this, the people that are higher up in the ministry are all terrible. Right. So, like, if you know, I have a feeling if Percy were to have been in the ministry 10 years ago or whenever, when there was, you know, if, if Dumbledore was the minister of magic, yeah, he absolutely would probably be on their side from day one. You know what I mean? Like he would be on the side of, of yeah, Voldemort's back. Let's because he would be listening to whoever was above him power wise that he could rise up underneath. You know what I mean? Right. So Percy's character flaw here is that he is kind of incapable of thinking for himself. Yes. He's a, a rule follower to the nth degree. Yeah, yeah he's strictly rule abiding, uh, and 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 in in the face of outside mm-hmm. important events that are going on, he's kind of blind to ever, all of those things. Yeah, and just sort of worried about what and the I, rules. I think too, like the idea of him being embarrassed by his family is important here because yeah. the Weasleys we know are kind of considered like blood traitors. Um, even yeah. and even to some extent by people who don't outwardly buy into the right. blood status idea, right. but because it's part of the fabric of their society, mm-hmm. they do kind of buy into it. Yeah. And Percy kind of buys into it. Yeah, and he I maybe thinks of his family as people he doesn't want to be associated mm-hmm. with because yeah. he wants to make a name for himself. Right. Yeah. Then uh, this is another different one because I think these also absolutely qualify as evil. Uh, the Black family, and mm-hmm. now we don't really, we only really run into Sirius in this one. But I'm saying, as a whole, we get some of their history and that sort right. of thing. And and Sirius has a line where he specifically says that none of, well, other than he has cousins and whatnot that did join 
the Death Eaters and were Death Eaters, obviously Bellatrix being one mm-hmm. of them. But um, like his parents weren't Death Eaters. But yeah. and and they made, you know, they did sort of the Lucius Malfoy public facing type of like they weren't overt supporters of of or like public necessarily supporters of Voldemort, but very much were supporters of Voldemort. Yeah. Um, but they're also so they're also giant bigots. They hate muggles and and you know very obsessed with uh, pure bloodedness and and wizard mm-hmm. blood and that sort of thing. They're power hungry, uh, wealth obsessed, and miserly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they they collect this huge. Their house, as we see throughout the course of the beginning of the book, is full of all kinds of trinkets. Yeah, yeah it's huge and collect, it's just you know, full, just of, full junk. of treasures and ju- yeah, yeah, junk, but a lot of it that's worth a lot of money and you know all this kind of crazy like dark artifacts and just all this stuff uh, and they're also they're also traditionalist and that kind of ties back into the sort of uh mm-hmm. pure blood wizard blood obsession that they had and so they're sort of like yeah if we drew an analogy analogy to like nazi germany right. let's say the black family isn't necessarily like signing up to be in the army no. maybe some of them are some of them are and they're, they're proud of those people yes but and the family they're is definitely yes. supportive of all the policies yes they're the, they're the rich they're the upper class you know who yes yeah not they're not they're you know they're not the ones out yeah fighting or in yeah. they're not in the nazi regime they're not you know making it all happen but they're the they're benefiting from it they're supportive of it yeah and sort of they're along for the ride and then finally, uh, and this is uh, the wizarding community at large uh, as a force of evil kind of in mm-hmm. general, uh, because the wizard community at large is ignorant. Mm-hmm. It tends to be when you get a lot of people tend to be pretty ignorant, uh, status quo driven. Uh, a lot of them are bigots and they're also misinformed, partially misinformed by another one that I could have put on here, but I didn't just for the sake of time was uh, the newspaper. Uh the Daily Prophet. The Daily Prophet and, yeah. you know, whoever the editor. We never actually know the editor of The Daily Prophet. No, we don't. Which is kind of interesting. That seems like that could have been an interesting character to, like, meet the editor of The Daily Prophet. But, yeah. But The Daily Prophet as an entity is, above all, self-serving. Yes. It exists to sell itself, yes. as Rita Skeeter says yes. at some point in this book. Which tends to be the case for um, a lot of the media tends to have to do that. You have to... Yeah sell what you i mean you may yeah well that's a whole other topic for a whole other day so i'm not even gonna get into it but yeah the wizarding community at large as sort of not any individual being evil but as a an, an amorphous mass of humanity of wizardry they uh enable in their complacency mm-hmm. and their ignorance and their being misinformed they enable this festering rising fascism yeah for lack of a better word um in the shape of voldemort and his supporters uh and so again they're not evil they're not voldemort supporters in fact many of them are not you know actively not like you said through their complacency they enable that evil to perpetuate yes so what I think, um, I think part of what makes these characters, um, some of them are additions in yep. this book. They're new characters. Umbridge, yeah. uh, some of it are, some of them are changes in characters that we front, already yeah. knew. But I think what makes it really great is that they represent versions of evil that readers are more likely to recognize and identify with. Like Voldemort is essentially wizard Hitler. Yeah. So of course he's super evil, but most of us don't really have 
like a real life frame of reference for that. We haven't encountered that anywhere outside of like history books. Yeah. And I mean, history is real and history right. happened, but you're reading about it. You might as well be reading a piece of fiction. Right. Um, but a lot of us do have a real life frame of reference for people who abuse their power or for people who are ignorant or bigoted yeah. or for people who are driven by selfish, self-centered motivations. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think what that kind of plays into as well is that adding these sort of lesser evil characters mm -hmm. who we haven't really had a bunch of other than kind of like Snape to some extent in the, in yeah. the previous books. You know, Snape is, you know. We all, every book they think he's going to be be evil and the villain, but he ends up not. I mean, he is evil, but you know he ends up not being the villain, right? Of the of the book, but he's really kind of been the only thing. And then obviously, you know, Malfoy, you know, like the other students yeah. and that sort of thing. But they're not all these other big characters who are who are evil. Um, and I think it starts to show by bringing these in uh, the young readers that sort of this nuance, mm -hmm. because a lot of times in children's media, books, TV, movies, whatever. Bad characters tend to just be bad because yeah. it's it's easier for kid children to understand. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of simple. It's also just it makes storytelling a little bit easier and, mm -hmm. and you can make it shorter. You know, if you're trying to tell this complicated, nuanced backstory of this villain in a 10 page children's book, it's a little tougher. You know what I mean? Like, it's tough to kind of give that layer of nuance and motivation right. to why is this person evil? So they tend to just be like the quote unquote bad guy um, or girl or whatever. And we have that in Harry Potter to some extent. We have that with Voldemort and the Death Eaters. And now they do, uh, J.K. does flush out sort of why Voldemort is mm -hmm. the way he is. He's not just a bad guy. He is. He's not just a bad guy. Um, but we also have uh, characters in the ones that we've discussed who enable the obviously evil, who aren't themselves obviously evil. Percy is not obviously an evil character. Fudge is not obviously mm -hmm. an evil character. Umbridge is more so to some extent. Um, she's definitely played as the villain of this book for yes. most of it. Um, and the wizarding community at large, even more so, is obviously not evil. But they do enable those that are obviously evil. Because sometimes, they, like I said, they're, sometimes they enable those that are evil. And they're, they are themselves evil. Umbridge, uh, the black family, etc. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just naive or they're ignorant uh, or they're misinformed. Uh, like Percy and like Fudge and like the wizarding community at large. It's really complicated and it's nuanced. And it's important that kids think about these kind of things because the cycle of evil flourishing uh, within the crevices of the comfort of those in power will always be timely, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. It's almost always how fascism and authoritarianism take root. It's how injustice is overlooked. Evil rising and spreading takes a few evil operators to set things in motion and a bunch of comfortable people to ignore that it's happening. So I really think that it's an interesting and important element to add to the books and keep incorporating throughout the the remainder of the books um because yeah i think it's just i think it's a, very accurate to how the world works and i think mm -hmm. it's a good thing to kind of no it's it definitely is you know we talked in the goblet of fire episode and in the prisoner of azkaban episode about various ways that uh the at that rowling and that the creators of the films kind of grow up the series and this is one of those ways like kind of moving away from more childish ideas about what evil is and what bad people are into a kind of a more nuanced look at it mm -hmm. um and it, it is like that quote 
you kind of paraphrased it, that the world is an evil place, not because of evil people, but because of good people who look on and do nothing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was vaguely the, yeah. Same, a similar idea. Same idea that I was going for, just kind of rephrased it. But yeah. So yeah, that's uh, evil versus evil. Or how the world isn't split into good people and death eaters. Book facts. You have been told that a certain dark wizard is at large. This is a lie. It's not a lie. I saw it. We've got to be able to defend ourselves. And if Ahmed refuses to teach us how, we need someone who will. Every great wizard in history has started out as nothing more than what we are now. If they can do it, why not us? Order of the Phoenix. Book facts. Uh, Harry Potter and the Order of, Fe- Order of the Phoenix released on the 21st of June, year 2003. And that is a wait of three years since the Goblet of Fire came out. And the longest wait in between Harry Potter books. Uh, the waits between five and six and six and seven were both two years. So that is our, our longest uh, dry spell between Harry yeah. Potter books. Yeah. And at 870 pages in the U.S. edition, at least, it is also the longest Harry Potter book. Yes, it is. It's much shorter. I, I noticed in the it's like 750 pages in the British version. They must like format differently or something. Yeah, or probably. Font, or I don't know. Because <laughs> I saw that. I was like, how is it 100 pages shorter? There's no way they changed. You know, it's not like it's, it's no, just, right. It's, it's still in English. Yeah. But yeah, they must. Uh, so the series at this point was already a global phenomenon. And the book set new pre-order records uh, with thousands of people lining up outside of bookstores the night before its release to secure their copy at midnight. Mm-hmm. Did you ever get to go to a midnight release? Uh, seven, for you sure. For seven. I don't remember. I, I would have been. I would have probably done six too, and maybe five. But I, I vividly remember seven. I remember going. I never with friends did from get high to school. go to one. I wish I would have been able to. Yeah. Anyway, uh, five million copies of the of Order of the Phoenix were also sold within the first twenty four hours of publication. Wow. So not too shabby. No. Um, but despite increased security around uh, the book's publication and release, almost eight thousand copies were stolen from a Merseyside warehouse on the fifteenth of June that year in two thousand three. I tried to figure out like whatever happened with that i couldn't find any follow-up for it if anybody knows i would love to hear (laughs) if they ever found all of these eight thousand copies or or whatever Um, i couldn't find any follow-up on it but i thought it was kind of funny it's a lot of copies of a book to just run away with yeah um harry potter and the order of the phoenix was met with mostly positive reviews from both readers and critics a New York Times writer, John Leonard, praised the novel, saying, The Order of the Phoenix starts slow, gathers speed, and then skateboards with somersaults to a furious conclusion. As Harry gets older, Rowling gets better. However, he also criticized the one-note Draco Malfoy and the predictable Lord Voldemort. Uh, not unfair criticisms, no, I no, think. No, uh, Malfoy definitely becomes less one note in the final two mm-hmm. books. Yeah, he, <laughs> he yeah. gets fleshed out a little bit in the last two books. Yeah. Uh, the book was cited as an American Library Association Association best book for young adults and as an American Library Association notable book. It also received the Oppenheim Toy Portfolio 2004 Gold Medal, along with several other awards. 
Let's move along to Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix film facts. The minister's going to have a full uprising on their hands. It's your turn now. Discipline your line. We're in this together. If Voldemort's building up an army, then I want to fight. Don't have a ton of facts here. Uh, I mean, I could probably get more, have had a few more, but I kind of culled it down to some of the stuff I thought was most interesting so that this didn't go on for too long. First one, uh, Ivana Lynch, who uh, plays Luna Mm -hmm. in the film, earned the role after auditioning among 15,000 other girls. There was an open audition and 15,000 people auditioned for the role, but she ultimately landed it. Uh, But another person who was considered for the role was Saoirse Ronan. Hmm. And I actually thought she would be pretty good because she would have been interesting. I I don't I don't wish she had done it because I think Ivana Lynch was perfect as Luna. It's one of the best castings, and I mean, uh, in a in a series of perfect castings, (laughs) she's among the best uh, in my opinion. Um, But yeah, Saoirse Ronan, uh, which you may know her from a handful of things, including the host, which she's not particularly good in, but uh, she's really really good in Lady Bird, Uh Um, and she does a good job playing sort of. At least in Lady Bird, sort of uh, unique, quirky characters. Mm-hmm. So I, I think she she would have been pretty good. Uh, so Helen McCrory, who I didn't know who that was at first, was first cast as Bellatrix Lestrange, but she had to pull out because she was pregnant and they were doing mm. all the action sequences oh, at the yeah, end yeah, of yeah. the film. Um, and she wasn't going to be able to do it. Ultimately, Helen Bonham Carter got cast in the role. But yeah. uh, you may know Helen McCrory because, like I said, I didn't recognize the name. From Harry Potter, where she went on to play Bellatrix uh, sorry, where she went on to play Bellatrix's sister, Narcissa, in oh, Half-Blood Prince. And, so she's uh, Draco's mom. Yeah, she's Narcissa Malfoy. Interesting. Um, so she originally was going to be Bellatrix Strange. They didn't, uh, she, like I said, she couldn't do it. So they're like, oh, you can just play her sister <laughs> in, in the later <laughs> movies. Uh, the Black's family's house elf creature was cut from the film in, in one of the early drafts of the script. However, mm-hmm. Roll it, Rowling talked to the filmmakers and was like, you should include him. She said, you know, I wouldn't cut him if I were you. Or you can, but if you get to make a seventh film, you'd be tied in knots. Boy. So he was added back into the script. (laughs) Uh, Because Creature, obviously, uh, if you read the books, has an important role to play. Yeah, he has kind of a pivotal role for a a particular important plot point later on. Which I realize I had forgotten, and I still have forgotten what that is. I do remember that there is something important he does, but I don't recall what it is. So that'll be a fun twist. That's funny that you remember, because I could not recall what it was. But yeah, so he, uh, they added him back in. British television director David Yates was chosen to direct this film. After Harry Potter and the Goblet Fire, the director Mike Newell decided uh, to drop out, didn't want to do it. Um, but they did offer to him the role, but he just bowed out. Uh, David Yates will go on to direct the rest of the series as well as both of the Fantastic Beasts films mm-hmm. that have come out. So he's done every Harry Potter film since wow. Order of the Phoenix. They also offered the job to Jean-Pierre Jeannette. Guillaume, they came back to Del Toro and said, are you sure? Or do you want to do it now? Because he was offered three uh-huh. and he didn't end up doing three. Uh, so they came back and said, maybe five? <laughs> and he's like, no. Uh, and Matthew Vaughn. And then Mira Nair, who I'm not sure who that is. I've never heard of her. Okay, obviously you know I know her? Del Toro and I know Vaughn because Vaughn directed Stardust, which yes. is one of my favorite movies. But I don't know 
Jeanet? Uh, Jean-Pierre Junet, Jeanette, I believe. Or Junet, maybe. Um, and I, I would have given a lot to see either Matthew Vaughn or Jean-Pierre Jeanette. I think David Yates has done a fine job with the films, but we really would have been interested to see either of those. Yes, like you mentioned, Matthew Vaughn, uh, director of um, Stardust, but also uh, the Kick-Ass films, mm-hmm. and uh, most recently, and maybe best, uh, the Kingsman films. Oh, that's right. He did do those. Yes. Which we thought was funny. I remember having that discussion after we saw the first Kingsman film. And then I was like, I looked up who the director was. And I was like, oh, you won't guess. That's the guy who did Stardust. <laughs> I knew he did Kick-Ass as well. But yeah. Uh, so I, I think that would have been really interesting. But Jean-Pierre Jeunet, most famously, is the director of Amelie. Oh. The writer and well, director that of Amelie. Would have been really interesting. I said, I wrote it down. I go, man, I would have loved to see that. I thought about it. I'm not exactly sure... That it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and maybe it doesn't make perfect sense, but, but I, it, it would have been interesting. It would have been interesting. Uh, it really would have been interesting. I think it might have been more interesting to see his take on three than like yeah. five. Yeah. Uh, but I think it could I think it could have worked. Because I think three was where it teetered right on the edge of that sort of... Because he does very... He also has some weirder stuff. Uh, like his movie <laughs> Delicatessen is very strange. He also directed a very bad... Uh, alien film i can't remember which one it is resurrection i don't know one of the se- one of the late sequels he directed and it did not come out well but uh, amelie is my favorite film of all time and i really really would have been interested to see what he did with a harry potter film but uh, he they all turned it down so we got david yates steve cloves the screenwriter for the first four films had other commitments and so this is the only film he has not written of hmm. all the harry potter films including fantastic beasts he did not write this one the rest of them he penned and originally, they shot a three-hour f- uh, film of Order of the Phoenix, which Oof. makes sense when you have yeah. 870 pages. Uh, however, they had to cut it down in the final edit because they had to cut like 45 minutes out there. Yeah. Like, we can't have a three-hour film that a bunch of 12-year-olds are going to go see. So <laughs> they decided to chop it down, which that's disappointing. I, I do wonder if there's... There must be a lot of deleted scenes. Surely. Um, I don't know if there's 45 minutes of deleted scenes on the DVD extras, but... <laughs> Because that seems normally when you get the deleted scenes on DVDs, there's like 10 or 15 minutes total. I would be amazed if there was 45 minutes that they included everything they cut. But maybe there is somewhere like the director's cut. And just as as a reminder, we do watch the theatrical cuts. We don't watch the ones with the extra scenes. Um, Yeah, we watch all the theatrical cuts uh, just because. Reasoning that those are the ones most people will most be people. most familiar yeah. with. Uh, although I think I I don't know I have to I'd have to check. I think a lot of the TV showings do uh-huh. the extended versions because hmm. I know a lot of times like Lord of the Rings they show the extended ones That's on true. TV. Yeah, and so I wonder if they do the same with Harry Potter. So if you're ever rewatching them on TV, you might be getting extended cuts. I'm not you know never sure which ones they show on TV more often. You would think they'd show yeah. the shorter ones, but. They show the longer ones and cram in more commercial breaks, honestly, <laughs> so I wouldn't be surprised. Honestly, theatrical cuts versus director's cuts make this really hard. Yeah, it, it does make it tough. It makes this so much harder than it should be. Especially for certain scenes because, you know, there's things that we say, oh, I wish they would have included this that are in the deleted scenes. Yeah. But we don't, you know, we don't go out and look and do all that research to see, how, you know, go find all of the deleted scenes and watch and make yeah. sure, oh, that thing we talked about was actually in that deleted scene, so... If you're ever like, hey, that is in the movie, it's probably in the director's cut or whatever. We, <laughs> we're we unaware. So that's going to do it for the prequel to the 32nd episode. And next week, it is Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Whew. It feels uh, like it's been a long time since we did an 
uh, the Goblet of Fire episode. I know. A lot has happened. I, I mean, it has been like three weeks. I still have to read like a third of this book. I, I still have to read like half of this book. I'm like 400 pages in. And I felt like I was making good time for a while, but now yeah. I'm like, holy cow, what happened? I am falling behind. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, but I have been really enjoying it and there's lots of things I forgot. And again, I, I'm constantly reminded of how good J.K. Rowling is as I reread these and how many little things she places throughout and how, like we discussed in the learning things segment, uh, just how relevant yeah. all of the themes and sort of... Mm-hmm. Yeah, how relevant all of the themes continue to be, uh, even more so when you're an adult looking at the world. So that's it for the prequel. As I said before, until next time, keep reading books, keep watching movies, and keep being awesome.